Huh. Yes. When will you pick up podcasts? They're up, but I'll tell you how to figure them out. Um, I'll send a note. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Uh, looks like there's a perfect square of people here. That's good. Not the right perfect square, which is more like 36, but a perfect square. Okay. Um, we will uh, talk about Borges a little bit more um, and then talk about Anaximander. What did you guys think of Anaximander? Smart guy. Smart guy? <laughs> crazy. Crazy, smart, crazy. Um, he lived, he died like uh, 70 years before Socrates was born. Um, so this is, and what you read as the note tells you, um, is probably the first sentence in Western philosophy. Um, so that's a pretty interesting thing and something we will get back to. Um, partly, as um, you'll see, um, he's already thinking in circular terms. That is the question that we were talking about on Monday. Um, what is this odd, um, inconceivable, but somehow, at least for some people, obsessive idea of a circle who centers everywhere and circumference nowhere. That's not what he's describing, but he is describing circles. And he is describing um, a relationship between center and circumference uh, that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, did you guys bring the Leonardo quote? Um, so. If you go to the Aleph, um, if you have, this is uh, about pretty much on the last page of the Aleph. So remember that what happens in the Aleph, um, which is partly funny, partly a parody, there's a lot of quirkiness in Borges. Um, this is always true of him. And, um, let me just say that if you want to read, if you liked Borges and you want to read more, you should go to the bookstore and get the book um, of his fictions, collected fictions, this one. Um, and uh, the, I think it's the first story in the book that you have, Amanda, um, fictions, um, is a story called Klon um, Upquar and Orbis Tertius. Um, and that's a, pretty more, that's a pretty amazing one. They're actually all pretty amazing, but that's a really good one. Um, there is one called The Garden of Forking Paths, which has become extremely famous, um, and uh, one called The Circular Ruins, uh, one called Asterion. Um, they're all pretty wonderful. Um, so here what happens at the end of the olive is that Borges gets to see the olive that Argentino has told him about. And um, what we get, this is about three pages from the end. If you have the book, it's on um, page 283. Um, we get a catalog of the things that he sees in the Aleph. It's a long catalog. The Aleph itself is very, very small, about an inch in diameter. Um, but he sees everything. And to give you an example of what he sees and what he sees simultaneously, he tells you, under the step, Toward the right, I saw a small iridescent sphere of almost unbearable brightness. So the olive itself is spherical. Um, 
ask yourself why that makes sense or whether it makes sense or whether it might make sense for the Aleph to have some other shape. Um, but what he sees is something spherical. Um, under the step toward the right, I saw a small iridescent sphere of almost unbearable brightness. At first, I thought it was spinning. Then I realized that the movement was an illusion produced by the dizzying spectacles inside it. The olive was probably two or three centimeters in diameter, but universal space was contained inside it with no diminution in size. Each thing, the glass surface of a mirror, let us say, was infinite things because I could see clearly I could clearly see it from every point in the cosmos. So he sees everything in the universe, but there's an addition here to the idea that he's seeing everything in the universe, which is he's also seeing everything in the universe from every angle that you could see everything from. Um, this is often described as how God might see things. That is, that when we see things, we see things from whatever angle we're looking from. Um, if someone shows you um, a book, you will see the front but not the back. Or possibly you will be able to see, as you know from dice as well, three surfaces out of the six surfaces of a cube. Um, that's the most that you could see from any point. If someone points the corner of a cube at you or the corner of a book at you, you can see three of the six surfaces. One, two, three, four, five, six. But at any point, you can only see three. If you were to look at a sphere, if you were to look at a globe, um, what you could see is at most half of a sphere, the half that's pointed towards you. That's why we only see one side of the moon or one side of a planet when we're looking at it. But if you were God, you would see everything. If you were God and you were omniscient, what does omniscient mean? All-knowing. Um, the idea that God sees everything is also an idea that God sees everything from every angle. It's not that God, um, that if you face God, you can hide something behind your back. God is looking at your front and also looking at your back at the same time. Um, this could be confusing, um, the idea of being able to see everything from every angle. Um, but if you thought about being able to see everything from every angle. Um, think about what it means even for us to see the world. So if you were to diagram, which we'll now um, try to do, if you were to diagram what human visual perception was like. Just imagine being in Wyoming or being on the beach looking out over the ocean. And here is a human eye. It's supposed to be an eye, like on the dollar bill. Um, and what can the eye see? Give, what are the limits of what the eye can see? What hits its retina. Okay, yeah, but, but just. Okay, so I can see to the horizon here. Okay, and we have a visual field, what's called a visual field, which from the movies we think of as um, a flat plane, but which isn't. It, one reason that um, movie making is hard 
is that you have to figure out how to turn three-dimensional vision into something that can appear on a two-dimensional surface. Yeah. Well, also, um, we see up and down mm -hmm. a little bit, but not all the way. So if I'm looking like this, I can't see my feet. Yeah. Um, you probably can with blind sight, but you don't know that you can. I mean, the table's in the way. Um, but um, you actually are getting visual information from below what you're conscious of, and it's important that you are. It's why we don't fall more than we do. Um, so, yeah, it's, well, it's autonomous processing, yeah. But um, let's just say, okay, so let's say the eye is looking straight out like this to the horizon. We're not now talking about foveal vision. Foveal vision is what you focus on. Um, do people know that term, foveal vision? So really, um, when you look at something, here, look at this piece of chalk. Can everyone see it? Sort of? If I throw it up? Yeah? So when you're looking at this piece of chalk, basically what you're, or when you look at my hand, basically what you're looking at my hand, around my hand, just keep looking at my hand, around my hand, um, in the background, the board, me, this desk, and so on, you're seeing, but you're only seeing in little tiny bits and pieces, like pixels that are dropping out of a slow connection on Netflix. But it doesn't matter because what your eye and what your attention is focused on, you can see very clearly. So look, if you look at my hand and try to be aware, try to be attentive, not to my hand, but to the peripheral vision around my hand, what you'll see is peripheral vision starts really, really close to my hand. Um, foveal vision is very, very tightly focused. It's very narrow. And the rest of the visual field is, which you're not generally paying attention to unless something, unless there's sudden motion, which is enough for you to, be, to become aware of it. But the rest of the visual field is kind of dropped out into just little bits of colors, of, of objects, of um, outlines, and so on. Can you see that? If you look at it, you're not. We think of the visual world that we're seeing as presented to us sort of like a postcard, but in fact, we're always scanning it. And our brains put together what we're scanning so that we're aware of the world as a continuous visual field but we're aware of it not in our actual vision, but in our thought about what it is that we can see. But what you can focus on is something which is very, a very, very narrow part of a much wider visual field. So the part of the, your visual field that you can focus on is about 2% of the plane that you're looking at. That's called foveal vision. It's what you look straight at. Um, if you lose foveal vision, um, you can still see things, but it's a whole lot harder to know what it is that you're seeing. So foveal vision is what you focus your vision at. But let's now not talk about foveal vision, but let's talk about how far you could see um, if there were, say, a sudden flash. So you couldn't move, your, you're not moving your eye but somewhere, you're just looking at something on the horizon here, and somewhere there's a flash of light. Where could you see the flash of light? If it were here, could you see it? No. So we'll just say this is the back of the head. 
Like the residents, do you guys know who the residents are? No, all right. Ask your parents. Um, back of the head. So flash of light here, you don't see it. Um, flash of light here. Sudden bright flash of light. Probably see it. Yeah. I mean, you would look down. If there was a sudden flash, you might not be sure it happened, but you would look. So that's all we're asking for is the limit is where it fades out so that you would no longer look. Where if there was sudden movement or sudden flash of light. Sudden movement is something that we're evolved to pick up on in peripheral vision. If you're walking along and suddenly someone tries to punch you from the side, you'll see the fist coming even though you're paying almost no attention to that because there's a part of the brain that is um, primed to react to sudden movement, primed to react to a sudden change. Um, so stuff that you think you're not seeing, if there's sudden change, you would see it. So that's what we're asking for, is where could something major happen where we wouldn't react to it at all? Something, something major visually happened where we wouldn't react to it at all. That would be the limit of the visual field. Yeah? Um, don't we all have a blind spot at some point in our vision that our brain fills in? Yeah. So wherever that is. That's actually, no, the blind spot is actually pretty much straight ahead. Um, one, although not the major reason to have two eyes, but one reason to have two eyes is that one eye will pick up what the other eye doesn't if it's in the blind spot. So, um, yeah, you can figure that out, but it's actually not relevant to this part. So, so um, looking straight ahead, you might see a flash of light here, right? If you see it here, you would certainly see it all the way to foveal vision and then it might disappear again, like around here. What about to the side? Yeah. Yeah, so you'd certainly see it here, 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 and maybe it would disappear around there. Likewise on the other side of the board, if this were a real eye. So basically, basically, it's not actually so, but um, idealizing a bit, what we look at what our visual, what, what's called a visual field is actually like the inside of half a sphere, of a hemisphere. If you put yourself, do you, have any of you been to the uh, Christian Science Maparium? Do you know about this? Oh, yeah. You've been there? Cool. Describe it. So, <clears throat> you, walk, uh, you walk into, you know, it's like you walk along this bridge and uh, you're, suddenly you're inside this uh, stained glass globe of the earth, but you're looking out from inside the globe rather than looking from the outside. Um, and another really cool thing is if you stand exactly in the center of the sphere and you talk, you hear your voice echoing all around you because it bounces off all the edges of the sphere. And if you stand on one um, extreme of the sphere and talk someone um, diametrically opposite to you, you can hear you whisper, um, but no one else will hear it. So they're about 30 feet away. It's worth going to. It's in the Christian Science Center on Huntington Avenue, um, basically across the street from Symphony Hall. Is there? Yeah. Um, so basically, what you, if you stood right in the middle of the maparium, you would be able to see a hemisphere, the hemisphere that, towards which you were facing, and you wouldn't be able to see the other hemisphere. And that's essentially what our visual field is like. So if you stand on a beach and you turn to just look at where at the absolute periphery of your vision, if you do this, just do it. And just move your hands back till they disappear. So it'll be at about 180 degrees, right? Not quite. 
Um, and then you can turn to what to to how far you could see what you would be looking at. Okay, you can stop. What you would be looking at um, would pretty much be a hemisphere. So the eye, you could say, when we look at the world, when we have vision, um, if there weren't things that were stopping our vision, like walls, windows, other people, floors, things like that, if we were looking out into sheer vastness, um, and at the very limit of what we could see when things got too small to see, um, if you just dotted lights out, if you pulled just an array of lights out from the eye so far that, they, that each one, you just said, now it's disappeared, and then it comes back an inch. If you had a million lights like that pulled out to the point where they were about to disappear, and then looked at the shape, it would basically be hemispherical. So we are looking, our visual field is actually a hemisphere, not a flat surface. As I say, this is something movie makers have to deal with. Um, and it's um, the wider the screen, the more difficult it is to deal with the fact that you're showing something on a flat screen, which is not flat in our real experience of it. This is something, by the way, that Leonardo talks about. This is not um, a new um, idea by any means. Okay, so what you could say then is that our visual perception is hemispherical. Um, now imagine God. What God is doing is if he is looking at my hand the way you were, he's looking at it from every point of view that all 25 or now 28 of you have, and you're all two-eyed, so all 56 points of view that you have um, on my hand. But he's also looking at it from 56 points of view behind me, so he can see the back of my hand, 56 points of view to my right, 56 points of view to my left, from up, from down, from everywhere. He's looking at it from, let's call them an infinite number of different points of view. A question you could ask yourself is, why doesn't he get confused? If he's looking at my hand from all those different points of view, what should my hand look like to him if he's fusing all those images? What? It's just understanding, like, it's, there's one issue of conquering what it means to sense that, but then another issue of what it means to perceive or process mm -hmm. that. And yeah. so I think at that point you just understand the dimensions and the, the, exist, like the form of that object, but you don't really sense it in the same way. No, that, that's, that's clearly true. So there are, two, there are two issues that are going on here. One is just that we are able to do something amazing. Um, apparently horses and birds are able to do a different amazing thing that we can't think how they do but they may not be able to think about how we do what we do. So birds see a different visual field out of each eye. Birds, um, or at least a lot of birds and horses, and this is something Melville talks about, about whales in Moby Dick. Um, because their eyes are on the side of their heads, they don't, their both eyes aren't looking at the same thing. So if a bird closes one eye, what it sees out of the other eye, um, is completely different from what if it, from if, it's, if it alternates the eyes that it looks out of. What a bird does then is it takes these two things that are completely different from each other and somehow 
um, in its brain, it fuses them into a single thing. We do something different. We have what's called binocular vision. And what we do is we take two angles on the same thing. And that means that they look different. They don't look vastly, wildly different, but they do look different because our eyes looking at something, if I, hold, if I hold this chalk up and imagine it as a point, it's the apex of a triangle whose base goes from your left eye to your right eye. Um, if you want to see that we see different things, look at your nose, cross-eyed. And what your right eye sees, and what, or put your finger, do it. Come on, it's, it's like Simon says. Simon says, put your finger on your nose. Now look cross-eyed. And what one eye sees and what the other eye sees, they're both looking at your nose, but one eye sees something very different from the other. Because noses tend to be symmetrical, um, if, you if you cross your eyes without putting your finger on your nose, they're kind of mirror images of each other, so that's okay. But if you, um, you've all done this, um, where you may be, um, you may have a pillow, you may be lying on your pillow and you're bored, because you finished your fantastic reading for this class. And so now, you're, now you have your head on your pillow. And um, let's say you're lying on your right cheek. So you close your right eye and open your left, and you see the room behind your pillow. You close your left eye and open your right, and you see pillow. And you open both eyes, and you see the room behind the pillow kind of with a ghost of pillow in front of you. Um, but there are also times when you can think you're looking at the same thing and yet one eye sees something very different from the other. Generally, the difference isn't very when we look at things. It's only a little bit. Nevertheless, that little difference, our brain pushes those two images together and sees them as a single image but as a single three-dimensional image. That occurs through brain processing. Uh, images that are coming to the brain. So God is doing the same thing, except instead of two eyes, he has an infinite, he has an infinite number of eyes. And instead of two slightly different angles that he's looking at something from, he's looking at that thing from an infinite number of different angles. But it's just a question of degree, not a question of kind. Now, you could imagine what visual image God was getting if you imagined just getting a camera, this is what they do for CAT scans, but getting a camera um, and taking a hundred different pictures of an object from a hundred different angles from all around it, and then taking those hundred different transparencies and superimposing them. And what you would get is a completely uniform thing that you couldn't see at all. But God is able to process them so he sees things from every angle. Is this making sense so far? Is this, I mean, there's no other way if you were God to, um, we can't imagine any other way that God could see. Yeah? It sort of reminds me of the way that insect vision works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, where you've got, um, I guess insects are, are doing, um, are sort of fusing an image that's composed of many, many eyes, I guess. Mm -hmm. You've got a compound eye, and each, each facet of the compound eye has a slightly different image, but one that is slightly overlapping with yeah, or if you think of those um, those collage photos where you take you know 50 photos of something and then you turn them into a collage, 
um, so that uh, you, so that they overlap each other. It doesn't look like a visual field, but you can still figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, do we have, as far as this class goes, a working definition for God, or are we just working with the transcendent? Yeah, we're just working. <laughs> we're we're working with a with a naive definition of God. Um, you know, uh, uh, a um, being whose who's, um, center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. That, you know, everybody's idea. No, just God, whatever, whatever people mean when they mean God. Um, all right, the thing, the point then is, is that if on a human idea of vision, we are at the center of a sphere of which we can see one hemisphere at a time. So every person is the center of their own sphere, but they can't see what's going on behind them. So there's a hemisphere that we can't see. We're aware of it in other ways. We're aware of um, it through hearing. We're aware of it through various tactile senses. We're aware of it through memory. But at any given moment, you could say that what it means to be a human being um, a seeing human being is to be at the center of a sphere of which a hemisphere is more or less available to you visually and the other hemisphere isn't. Now if you could see out of the back of your head um, sort of the way whales can, although they see out of the sides of their heads, then they would be, a whale would be at the center of a sphere um, in which it could see the whole sphere. A hemisphere with its left eye, a hemisphere with its right eye. So what it means to be able to see, then, is each eye can pick up a hemisphere. And for some animals, both eyes together picks up the whole sphere. For humans, because our eyes are facing the same way, we pick up a hemisphere. Now, God sees everything from every angle. So what we could, to quote Emily Dickinson again, who talks about finding God at every gate. This is a poem whose first line, Dickinson didn't title her poem, so we, only, we refer to her, her poems by their first lines. Um, this is a poem whose first line is, our journey had advanced. So what she says at the end of the poem is that she would find God at every gate. So one way to imagine, in human terms, what it would be like to see everything from every angle, at every distance, at every moment, would be to imagine millions and millions and millions of seeing things, millions and millions and millions of mini-gods, micro-gods, nano-gods, seeing everything from every angle at every moment. And all of them together, all those visions together would constitute the vision of God. That is the way God sees things. So you would imagine if you wanted to think of God as omnivisual, omnisighted, as a way of talking about his omniscience, you would say that God is seeing everything from every angle at every moment. And the way to imagine that is to densely pack the universe with God's eyes. 
so that everywhere there's an eye of God facing, or everywhere there are, let's say, um, to quote Ezekiel, do people know Ezekiel? Um, the prophet. So, Joy, what happens in Ezekiel at the beginning? Do you remember the first thing he sees? He sees a chariot. Um, he's lying. Yeah, he's lying in he's lying in mud and dung, and then he sees a chariot. And um, pulling the chariot are four-faced creatures, creatures with four faces, looking ahead, behind, and to the left and to the right. And that is somehow, in some strange allegorical way, a representation of God's ability to see. So just you know, multiply that to some insane degree, so that at every point in the universe, you could say there's a kind of cluster of four microscopic eyes of God um, that are looking backward, forward, to the left, and to the right. Or maybe you need six so that they're looking up and down as well. Just a kind of um, cluster of God's eyes, like a cluster of grapes, a cluster of God's eyes at every point in the universe. And then what all those eyes together would see, God would fuse that all together in his mind. And that would be omniscient seeing. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it, it should make sense um, theoretically, even if it's a weird picture. Yeah. Okay, does that make sense to people though? You're following this? Now if we, if I, if you, singular, are at the center of a sphere and what you see is its circumference, and if God is omniscient, then his vision, everything he sees, he would see from the center of a visual sphere but he would be seeing from every point in the universe. And therefore, we could say, at least for God as a seeing entity, he would be in, well, no, he would be a sphere whose center was everywhere. And circumference nowhere, because he'd always be at his own circumference. So somehow being able to see everything simultaneously, the only way we can picture that is to imagine being at the center of the universe at every point in the universe simultaneously. Then we could see everything from every angle close up at every moment. And that might make some sense of that idea of a sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. Yeah? But, I mean, that's assuming that, that you know, God is similar to us in the sense of, uh, you know, being at the center of a sphere. I mean, I can fill a room with cameras and mm -hmm. look at it from essentially every angle. Yeah. It doesn't make me in the center of that room. No, but, but in the system that, that, that would include that, you know, if you think of um, the Bourne legacy as one example of that, or, you know, all those 24 type things where you use security cameras that are everywhere in the world to um, follow things from everywhere. Um, yeah, Ed Norton is just in some room somewhere, but we don't even know where he, where he is. If you've seen The Bourne Legacy, it's good. If you haven't seen it, it's good too. Um, and um, where he is doesn't matter because what he actually is is himself plus the extension of the system that he controls. Um, so God being omnipresent, the three 
traditional uh, attributes of deity in Christianity are that God is omniscient, he sees everything or knows everything, omnipresent, he is everywhere, not in any particular place, or rather in every particular place. This is something Augustine is going to worry about a lot. Um, Augustine is going to say, wait a second, if God is everywhere, then I have a kind of cylinder full of God right here, don't I? Um, how is it that I have this cylinder full of God? That seems kind of weird. Um, Augustine gets really upset about that idea. Um, but that he's omnipresent, omniscient, and the third attribute is omnipotent. He can do and, everything. And, and everything and anything. Everything and anything, yeah. Um, so that's, at any rate, some way to make sense of this. What Borges is also describing here is cubism. Do people know what cubist art is like? So some of you nodding. How is this a description of cubism? Do people know a new descending flight of stairs? Yeah. Um, well, uh, cubist representation, like, they grew out of like the crisis of representation that you can't like represent things as they are. You have to uh, present it from a certain vantage point that's subjective. So cubism is kind of like trying to present uh, like a normal three-dimensional object from every angle. Like there's one like with, it's like a bowl of grapes or something like that, but you Yeah, so it doesn't look the way things look like to where you are in the real world. Um, if you look at a still life in the real world, you're looking at it from a certain point of view. But the idea of cubism, at least one idea of cubism, is to show things not from a point of view, but to show something from every point of view. And if you do that, what you get is this um, strange, um, non-realistic looking thing but it gives you, if you put this in terms of information, it gives you much more information than you would get if you were looking at it um, simply from a single angle. Um, so Borges is partly talking about when he describes what he has seen in the Aleph. Um, he's also doing a little very quick history of um, visual art. Okay, now let's go, we'll skip the catalog. One thing Borges is great at though is catalogs. Um, all the things he saw in the Aleph, including your face, um, that's like all the things that could be read in the Library of Babel. He loves to come up with catalogs of things uh, just to show how rich the world is. And nevertheless, no matter how rich it is, the books in the Library of Babel, the Aleph in Buenos Aires, will contain all those things. Um, then in the postscript, so this is just a few paragraphs from the end, he writes, there are two observations that I wish to add. One with regard to the nature of the Aleph, the other with respect to its name. Let me begin with the latter. Aleph, as well all know, is the name of the first letter of the alphabet of the sacred language, that is of Hebrew. Its application to the disk of my tail would not appear to be accidental. In the Kabbalah, the letter signifies the en sof, sometimes called the ein sof, the pure and unlimited Godhead. So um, that's 
the origin of the universe in Kabbalistic doctrine. Do people know about this at all? Anyone from the Zohar? What do you know about it? I just, I've heard it before. Okay, so um, it's the origin of everything, um, a kind of brilliance that breaks up like light in a prism into the world that we know. Um, in the Kabbalah, do people know what the Kabbalah is? Is this um, anyone not? Really? Everyone knows what it is? Okay, good, good to admit it. What is it? It's Hebrew, it's, a, it's mysticism within the Judaic faith, but it's, it's got really ancient, and, and for people that aren't familiar with bizarre roots that they can't, like, they sometimes get put off by. Okay, yeah, Joy. It's also really systematic. Um, there are a lot of different spheres, like there are a lot of different like, number, um, number analyses, analyses that are very, it's heavy yeah, on numerology. Yeah. Well, so basically, it goes back to Gnosticism, to um, heresies from the um, beginning of the first millennium. And um, what the Kabbalah is, is a collection followed by interpretation and um, um, explication of certain very um, radical and mystical ideas of God and the creation of the universe and so on. And it understands, Kabbalistic doctrine understands that um, what's said in the Bible, what's said in Genesis about the creation of the world is allegorical. Um, that what, and K Kabbalah purports to say the true thing. Um, it's very strange, very mystical, probably has sources in the same um, places that a lot of Eastern mysticism has its sources. Um, it's pretty much ruled out by what's called normative Judaism. They don't want to hear from the Kabbalah. Um, but it's older than normative Judaism. Its roots are older than the Talmud. Um, and um, it's in two parts of which the um, central part is called the Zohar. Um, sometimes also called the Book of Splendor. Um, and it's very strange, and if you're Jewish, you're not supposed to open it till you're 35 years old because you might misunderstand. Um, so Borges, who I think was a quarter Jewish, did open it before he was 35 years old. Um, and he's interested in the Kabbalah. So, by the way, was James Joyce. Um, the Ein Sof appears in his book, Finnegan's Wake. Um, and he starts thinking about the Aleph according to the Kabbalah, just to give you a sense of what's in the Kabbalah. Those of you who know any Hebrew know that Aleph is a silent letter. Is this, mm -hmm. so is anyone puzzled by the idea of a silent letter? Um, what about the E at the end of, um, I don't know. Pressure? Of what? Pressure. Pressure, good. That's a silent letter, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have meaning. Like yeah. The E at the end of pressure allows us to know that the, the U and the, the syllable before it make a certain sound. Aleph is a placeholder that has meaning given other vowels or other letters. Yeah, so basically the rule in Hebrew is that every, that there's, every syllable is a consonant and a vowel. If you have a syllable which is only a vowel, there's what's called a silent consonant. We have silent vowels. Um, well, French has silent consonants. Um, the, the yeah, the T at the end of bidet is silent. 
Um, but in Hebrew, the rule is that every syllable has a consonant and a vowel. If you begin with a vowel, like in the word aleph, then the first consonant of that word is a silent one. That's just standard Hebrew um, graphology. Um, according to the Kabbalah, the aleph was spoken once, sounded once, in the history of the universe. When God gave the Bible, the law, the Torah, to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, according to the Kabbalah, he said for the first and only time the sound of the Aleph. Because the Aleph, kind of like the Library of Babel reduced to a single sign, to a single sign which can be reiterated as much as you want, the Aleph contains the entire universe. God said it, and the entire Torah was in the instantaneous saying of the sound of the Aleph. It then got unpacked in the five books of Moses, and the whole Hebrew Bible, in the Mishnah, and the Gomorrah, in everything that gets said afterwards. But the entire law was given to the children of Israel according to Kabbalistic doctrine in an instant, in the one moment when God said the sound of the Aleph. It's a sound that contains all sounds the way white light contains all light, all colors of light. That was the Aleph. That's one reason that Borges is calling this the Aleph. It's also one reason that Contour uses the idea of Aleph naught, which we talked about the first class, um, for the for infinite sets. So let's go on with this. There are two observations I wish to add. One, with regard to the nature of the Aleph, the other with respect to its name, let me begin with the latter, that is its name. Aleph, as well all know, is the name of the first letter of the alphabet of the sacred language. Its application to the disk of my tail would not appear to be accidental. In the Kabbalah, that letter signifies the Ensof, the pure and unlimited Godhead. Hang on to that word, unlimited. It has also been said that its shape is that of a man pointing to the sky and the earth to indicate that the lower world is the map and mirror of the higher. So to remind you of its shape, or not, so that's the shape of the olive. This would be pointing to heaven. This would be pointing to the earth. This would be um, presumably the man either looking up, leaning back to look up, or leaning forward to look down. We don't know. But pointing both directions to show that this is a mirror of that. That the lower world is a mirror of the higher. That each, or at least that the lower one contains, reflects everything in the higher. For the Mengenlehrer, the Aleph is a symbol of the transfinite numbers. Anyone know what Mengenlehrer means? Set theory. So here he's explicitly bringing it to what Contour essentially invented, which is what's called set theory, which is um, what modern mathematics is based on. It's something that we'll talk about. We've already started talking about it in terms of one-to-one -one correspondence. 
So f what he's doing here is saying, therefore, he's bringing in contour when he brings in the olive as the sign inset theory for the transfinite numbers. Again, that's something that we just touched upon and that we're going to say more about. Um, but that's something to notice. Now, as far as that goes, um, OK, so he now gives you an important thing that you should underline, an important fact about transfinite numbers that in which the whole is not greater than any of its parts. That's one of the um, characteristics of an infinite set. That, so just think back to seventh grade for a little while, just for a minute. I know it was painful, but there were good things too, right? No, not at all? OK. Well, you may have learned, I think it's in seventh grade, you may have learned the concept of a set and a proper subset. Is this something familiar to people at all? Do you remember what a proper subset is? Anyone? Do you remember that phrase, proper subset? Subset. Yes. Subset, yeah, everyone knows a subset. But you were also taught, and you probably you know, got this wrong on a quiz at some point, and you thought it was so stupid because who cared? But you were taught, so if you have a set that contains the number, that contains the letters A and B, how many subsets does that set have? No. 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 Four. What are the subsets? And what's the last one? Okay, there are four subsets. The subsets of the set that contains A and B is one subset is simply the set containing A. One subset is a set containing B. One subset is the original set, the set containing A and B. And one subset is the null set. Do you remember the null set? Remember how it's a subset of every set? It's one of those things that you were told, and who knew why, but if they wanted you to believe that, fine, whatever. So it's always called the null set. Notice that, by the way, not a null set. It's the null set. That's something to keep in mind. There's only one, but it's a subset of every set in the universe, the null set. The set with, what is the null set? The empty set, it's sometimes called. A set with no elements, the null set. Got lots of different names. A set with no elements, for example, the null set is female presidents of the United States. That's the same set as the set of um, shrimp to be found on top of Mount Everest. Those are two names for the same set. And that set is, say it again, say it with me. The null set. Yeah, can I get it? The null set, good. So every set has as one of its subsets the null set, and as one of its subsets the original set itself, and then sets that are parts but not the whole of the original set. So for A and B, it's the set containing simply the element A, a one-element set A, a one-element set B, a two-element set A and B, and the null set. If you have three elements in a set A, B, and C, how many subsets? Anyone know? More. More, good. Eight. The way the rule for figuring out the number of subsets to a set is it's two 
to the number of elements. So if you have a set with five elements, there are how many? Which is? No. 32. Yeah. So five elements, 32 subsets. Six elements, 64 subsets. Yeah. Um, wait, so that, that means that when we say that we have a set with something in it, the sub, we're, we're basically saying that that set that contains something also contains nothing within that something. No, it doesn't contain, sets don't contain their subsets. This is um, a really important fact that sets do not contain their subsets. Subsets are sets that you can form by taking some of the elements of the original set. But that would mean that the element, the null set is an element. No, no, it's you not an element. By taking nothing from the original set, you, you have a subset. Yeah. Look, think of it this. It's a lack this, of taking the elements. This is a hard concept, which again, you get drummed into your head and apparently it gets drummed out of your head before you learn why it's being drummed into your head. But it really is a, it is a hard, it's a simple but hard concept. Um, those are always the most fun or the least fun, depending who you are. Um, but this is a simple but hard concept. But think of it this way. Let's say you take all Major League Baseball players. Then what would a team be? parallel to in terms of set theory. So all Major League Baseball players in, in the National and the American Leagues right now, um, that's a set of, of um, playing players. So what would a team be? A subset. a subset of that. So the Boston Red Sox is a subset of all the Major League Baseball players. Um, what about the American League? It's also a subset. What about all starting pitchers tonight? Also a subset. What about all catchers? Also a subset. So there are different ways that you can take groupings from all these, from every major league player. Some seem natural. That is to say, the teams that are playing, um, because they're divided up that way through various negotiations and so on. Um, some seem unnatural. Let's just say um, left-handed pitchers um, whose whose um, mitts have mud on, um, on the very base. That would be a subset of major league players. Um, but who cares? Um, nevertheless, there is such a subset. But the point is that a subset is not an element, or not necessarily an element. There are going to be exceptions to this. But most of the time, a subset will not be an element of the set that it's a subset of. How do you know this? Because guess what isn't a major league player? The Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox is a team. It's not a baseball player. <laughs> even it's, not if, even a team. it's not even a team. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have picked the Red Sox. You're right. That was confusing things. Um, can't pick the Yankees either. Um, Giants. Okay, the Giants. Yeah, the Orioles. Um, so. There are subsets that are not players. In fact, no subset of the players in Major League Baseball is itself a player. It's a set. Every subset, the thing that every subset of the team of, of all Major League players has in common is that every subset is a set. But none of us is a set. A human being isn't a set. A human being is a human being. 
But again, the easy way to say this is a subset of the, of the set of all major league players is the Baltimore Orioles, but the Baltimore Orioles is not a baseball player. The way Bertrand Russell will put this is to say that mankind is not a man. So that you're talking about different things when you talk about sets and when you talk about their elements. So that's a hard thing to keep in mind, but it is a thing you should keep in mind. That sets and subsets and elements are different things. Okay, um, we'll go over this. If, if this is confusing to you or if you're kind of saying, um, I really don't want to think about this for very long, that's fine. You don't have to. Um, frequently, yes. Long, no. But let's go back to proper subsets. A proper subset is any subset of a set which is smaller, which is only part of the original set, but not the whole thing. So a proper subset is basically all but one of the subsets of a set. If you have the set A and B, the set containing the elements A and B, its proper subsets are the, element, are the set containing the element A, the set containing the element B, and the null set. But the original set, a comma B is not a proper subset of itself. So sets are not proper subsets of themselves. You learned this, it was drummed into you, you got this right on a quiz or you got it wrong on a quiz and then you forgot it. But it's a useful, for the reason that Borges gives, it's a useful term, the idea of a proper subset. Because when you talk about infinite sets, let us talk about the set of whole numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, et cetera. Now let's talk about another infinite set, which I will tell you is just as big as the set of whole numbers. That's the set of even numbers, 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. Why that's the same size as the set of whole numbers is something that we will talk about later on but we will just stipulate that now, that there are as many even numbers as whole numbers. So that 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, dot, 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 to infinity, and 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, dot, 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 to infinity, those sets are the same size. Okay, Do you, are you willing to accept that right away or is this something that you're not so sure about? You would like to, sorry? Yeah, it's the same with odd numbers, it's the same with multiples of 10, it's the same with primes, it's the same with multiples of 100 billion. They're all the same size. That is Aleph sub zero. So infinite sets can sometimes be the same size as other infinite sets. Even and we can show very easily, as it turns out, we'll do this next week, incredibly easily. You may not like how easy it is to show it. But we can show that the set of odd numbers is the same as the set of whole numbers, same size as the set of whole numbers. You can show that the set of even numbers is the same size as the set of whole numbers. You can show that the set of multiples of 10 is not one-tenth the size of the set of whole numbers. It's the same size as the set of whole numbers. Um, in fact, it's so pathetically easy to show this that um, you may say, wait a minute, that's totally cheating. Does that, that involve subsets? 
It doesn't involve subsets to show that, no. Do now. It's the uh, How? What's that? Do you know it? Um, Does everyone know what XKCD is? Yeah. yeah okay. Good. No. What is that? It's the best comic. It's the best one. It's, 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 I forgot the middle line, but it started out top primes divisors, and then the last line was QED, which is yeah, so. quote error. Yeah. So and that's QTF. Yeah. <laughs> but like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. All right. I think I know what that is, and I don't think that's quite right, but could be. But it could be. All right. That would be an interesting thing to prove. Um, okay. We will do this next week. It's but just take it for. Let's just say because we're still trying to interpret Borges. Let's just say that this is true. Um, that the set of even numbers and the set of whole numbers is the same, same size. However, we can say something else. The set of even numbers is a subset, not a proper subset, but, I mean, excuse me, is a proper subset, not just any subset, but is a proper subset of the set of whole numbers. How do we know? Because there's at least one number in the set of whole numbers that's not in the set of even numbers, namely the number one. In fact, there are at least two, the numbers one and three. Well, come to think of it, Five, seven. There are a whole lot of numbers that are not in the set of even numbers that are in the set of whole numbers. In fact, there are an infinite number of numbers. Ha <laughs> ha. There are an infinite number of numbers, all the odd numbers, that are found in the set of whole numbers but are not found in the set of and even numbers. And yet they're the same size. So here is one thing that we now know about infinite sets. An infinite set, unlike a finite set, is a set which a proper subset of which, that is a subset that doesn't contain all the elements of the original set. An infinite set is a set, a proper subset of which, at least one proper subset of which, is the same size as the original set. So when you talk about things which are infinitely large, the fact that one is seems to be twice as large at any point, scales up twice as fast, doesn't mean that the whole thing is twice as big as the original. In fact, they're the same size. That's a fact. That's a definition. That's a, that's a criterion for an infinite set. If in heaven, when you live forever, you are given two sets, and you spend a lot of time counting what's in them, and you find that one set has all the elements that the other set has plus more, but you also find after an eternity that they're both infinitely long, infinite sets, you will be able to tell, or you'll be able to tell that, one is, that they are infinite sets. That was a stupid way to put it. An infinite set is a set which contains proper subsets, or which, excuse me, proper subsets of which are the same size as the infinite set. Not all proper subsets. A subset of the set of whole numbers is simply the number one. And that's not the same size as infinity. But there is at least one proper subset, the even numbers, which is the same size as the original set. 
So that's just unpacking what Borges is saying in this sentence when he says, for the Mengenlehre, the Aleph is the symbol of the transfinite numbers in which the whole is not greater than any of its parts. And then he asks, I would like to know, did Carlos Argentino choose that name or did he read it? So he wants to know why this apparent moron, who nevertheless has discovered the Aleph, knew to call it the Aleph. So here he is, Carlos Argentino. He's, you know, he's a terrible poet. He's a moron. Borges has nothing but contempt for him, um, seasoned with resentment because he's winning literary prizes that Borges isn't. Um, but there he is. And he says, oh, you know, I have an olive in my basement. And Borges is saying, you're an ignoramus. How do you know it's an olive? So it's not only that he has this amazing thing, but Borges wants to know how he knows the right name for it. And then he comes up with an answer. Did Carlos Argentino choose that name, or did he read it, apply to another point at which all points converge? in one of the innumerable texts revealed to him by the Aleph in his house. So the really nifty idea here, I think, is that how would Carlos Argentino know to call it an Aleph? It must be because he saw in one of the things in the Aleph that the right name for this thing which contained everything within it was an Aleph. He must have read that word as one of the things in one of the books. Remember, every book in the universe is, and every page of every book in the universe is open in the Aleph. You can read every page of every book simultaneously. So he must have seen that such a thing is called an Aleph. Yeah? Good thing that the, uh, the Library of Babel doesn't coexist in the same story or else he would have no information whatsoever about this state of the universe. Exactly. If the library of Babel were there, then he would just have um, everything and more, which is to say all the gibberish too and all the falsity. But so Borges then has this great idea that if he found out that what he had is supposed to be called an olive, it must be because this sort of thing existed elsewhere, and he saw it in the olive. But then Borges is hoping that might prove that it's not a real Aleph and that um, the woman doesn't hate him and what he's seeing in the Aleph isn't actually the truth. Yeah? What if he knew to call it that, not because there was another one that's been documented, but because he saw himself in the future calling it that? Um, yeah, I think, Bor I think Borges, the character, doesn't want to allow that to happen because he wants to reject what he's found there. Um, we're not supposed to take seriously the idea, although it, it, we are supposed to take it niftily, but we're not to, supposed to take seriously that he could see in this olive and say, oh, it's just a false olive. Um, he wants it to be false because then he could deny the fact that she doesn't love him and that she never loved him. Um, he wants to be able to deny that. But still, the idea is a neat one. Um, so that it, so incredible as it may seem, just to finish the paragraph, I believe that there is or was another Aleph. I believe that the Aleph of Kalagarai was a false Aleph, to which we can say, you wish. Um, but it's still a neat idea. 
Now, let's just for a second go back to the Library of Babel and talk about a false book in the Library of Babel. So among the books in the Library of Babel are catalogs. You'll remember that. Um, catalogs of the library, catalogs of where you can find various books, catalogs of where you can find volume two of a multi-volume work of 820 pages. So one catalog will say, well, volume one of, let's just say, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which used to come out in volumes. Do you guys know about volumes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, volume one can be found in such and such a quadrant on such and such a shelf, in, in such and such a gallery on such and such a shelf. And volume two can be found in this completely different quadrant in a different gallery on a different shelf. But if you want both volumes, um, you can pick up one, volume one there and vo volume one somewhere else. Random access filing. Um, so you can find these things. And there's a catalog, what we would now call a directory, that tells you where these things are. You know the reason that you have to do secure um, uh, uh, discarding of files if you don't want anyone to find stuff on your hard disk? Do you, people know about this? That if you erase a file, if you trash a file, um, all you're trashing is um, a little piece in your computer that tells you where that file can be found and that that file should not be overwritten. Do people know this? So, okay, so let's say you um, have written um, a really nasty account of your roommate and then you realize that your roommate might be able to hack into your computer and you don't want your roommate to find this. So you have a file called, I hate my roommate, and you decide I'm going to trash it. So you drag it to trash. Mm -hmm. And all you're dragging to trash is something which is essentially the name of the file and its location on your hard disk. The file is still there on your hard disk. What you've dragged to trash is something that tells you where to find it. What? It's like the icon. Just yeah, it's just the icon. But the other thing you do when you drag it to trash is you're telling your computer you can overwrite that when you need to. Well, once you empty the trash. Yeah, once you empty the trash. Um, but you can empty the trash, but if you were to empty the trash and then leave your computer on, a hacker could find the file easily. Um, so emptying the trash doesn't get rid of the file. It just opens that area of your hard disk up to be overwritten when it happens to be overwritten. So you're getting rid of the name and the location, but the thing still exists. Just as I think if you threw a book uh, um, over the railing of the Library of Babel, the book would still exist. It would be falling. It, we wouldn't be able to find it, but it would still exist. So. That's how catalogs work also. They tell you where to look for stuff. About 20 years ago, do people know about card catalogs? Is this something you have any, any familiarity with? So um, do people know who Nicholson Baker is, the writer Nicholson Baker? Um, he wrote a book that, Bill Clinton, that <laughs> Bill Clinton gave to Monica Lewinsky, or I think she gave it to him, called Vox. Um, he's a pretty neat um, and pretty great writer. Um, about what? I think she gave it to him, but it's possible. I think she gave it to him. I can't remember now. He was very upset about the whole thing. Um, but um, about 20 years ago, Harvard got rid of its card catalogs. 
Um, and in fact, they had a party where they put a bunch of cards on balloons and let them just drift into the air. And Nicholson Baker was really, really upset about this um, for lots of reasons. He said the card catalog, in fact, was one of the great um, book-like things at Harvard. It was a catalog which said where everything was. But if you looked at the cards, they had amazing things written about them, annotations from librarians, um, things that didn't get um, put into the computer um, catalog, substitutes for the card catalog. Plus, there was a lot of errors in scanning um, and in typing in the card catalogs into computerized catalogs. And in fact, there are now books that are lost. They're in the Harvard stacks, but they're not in the catalog and they will never be found. Um, or if they are, I mean, they will never be found by someone who would look for them. Um, so they're needles in the Haystot stack of Widener Library, books that were in the original catalog, but they are now gone. So catalogs are important in order to help you find information in a library. The bigger the library, the more you need a catalog. So now let's say there are strange catalogs in the Library of Babel, because there's every catalog in the Library of Babel. One of them is called Books About Three-Legged Dogs. One of them is called um, Books in Which the Word Purple is the Central Word of the Book. Any catalog you can think of, you will find in the Library of Babel. One will be, of course, a master catalog of catalogs. That is, a catalog listing all the catalogs. Meta catalog, we could call it. A catalog listing all the catalogs. But you need a catalog to list the catalog, the volumes of that catalog. Yeah, and obviously it would be a multi-volume work, um, but it would tell you um, also which volumes there are. So the first few volumes would be um, Catalog of all the catalogs, volumes 1 through 493, um, table of contents. And then volume 494 would be the first catalog which isn't part of the table of contents, but it still would be the catalog of all the catalogs. You might have a book called Catalog of All Catalogs That Don't Contain Themselves. So the catalog, for example, of books about three-legged dogs is not itself a book about three-legged dogs. But the catalog of books about various collections would be listed in itself. That is the accurate book, right? So you could have a book called Catalog of Books About Three-Legged Dogs, and that would not contain itself. In that catalog, there would not be a book called Catalog of Books About Three-Legged Dogs. But you, you might have another catalog, which is catalog of books important to librarians, and what would be in that book? The, it, itself. In that book would be a listing for the catalog of books important to librarians. That would be one of the things listed in the book. Catalog of books important to librarians would include a catalog of books important to librarians. Um, now, what if you had a book that first book, catalogs of books that don't list themselves. Okay, like you'd have the book of three-legged dogs. You would have the um, book which contained the names of all Brandeis undergraduates on September 12, 2012. You'd have various things like that. What about that book itself? If it's in itself, it shouldn't be in itself. And if it's not, it 
Okay, so the catalog of books that don't list themselves shouldn't contain itself because then it would be a book that did list itself. So it shouldn't be in that catalog. But if it's not in the catalog, and that's a catalog of all books that don't list themselves, and if it doesn't list itself, what then? Then it exists. No, then it should be in the book. It should be in the book, but the book doesn't have to be telling the truth. So there's the book, a limit it's to not, the library. It's not, yeah, there are books that can't, there are, there are books that cannot can't be, be true. true. Yeah. Um, they're books that can't be true. Um, and the catalog of books that don't list themselves would be such a book. If you had such a book, and remember, you would have two copies of that book. You would actually have um, hundreds of copies. But let's say that you had a few hundred copies, or you had two copies. And in one copy, it had the catalog of books. It had itself in it. So two books. One is the catalog of books. They're both titled Catalog of Books That Don't List Themselves. The only difference between the two books is that on page 42, that'll always be our go-to number, right, for obvious reasons, that on page 42, um, in one book, you find the catalog of books that don't list themselves. And you say, ah, that can't be the true book, because it's listing itself, and therefore, it shouldn't be in that catalog. On the other book, on page 42, you don't find the catalog of books that don't list themselves. And you say, wait a second, this book doesn't list itself. So why isn't it in it? Because it did it would be false. Okay, so it doesn't e say it's a complete list of books. Yeah, well, let's, we, we, we tweak it so it's complete. Okay, does everyone see the um, interest of this? that if it lists itself, it shouldn't, and if it doesn't list itself, it should. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Sam, right? Jared. This Je Jared, Sam. sorry. OK. Both from California. Yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> Catalog of people from California. Two things. First, it reminds me a lot of like physics theories that are all about like whether the cat's dead or alive in the mm -hmm. box, and it's both <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, good. Um, so that, like, is there a book that exists where it's both in it and not in it? So it, it, it satisfies those, both, both of those. Well, yeah. And that's what I was talking about last it time when we talked about is that when you grab a random book, who's to say it's not the perfect book, the book you're looking for? Because it, it's every book in that library at one time. It is the perfect book. Yeah, but do you have a And then the, um, the other thing is that. That suggests that within, though we were talking about how it's like infinite and randomness and that, that every book does exist because of the nature of, I don't know, language or our minds or whatever, whatever existence and reality we have, there are some things that can exist because of a paradox. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, now back to the Aleph just for the, our last few minutes. Look at the Leonardo quote. Well, Leonardo... Um, where he wrote this was he was describing how lenses work. Do you know why cameras need lenses? When you were very little, did you just wonder, why can't I like expose? I don't know if you know what film is, but just <laughs> take a piece of film, show it the world, 
um, instantaneously and develop it. And if you do, what you get is just a blur. Um, why do you need lenses? Yeah. It's because um, if you just if you showed the piece of film the world, then light would be hitting it from all different angles, and so you would you would have a picture that is taken at every conceivable. Yeah, angle like God. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, would be, it would be the God picture. So here's one way to think about this. If you look at a rainbow and I look at a rainbow, and we both see the rainbow, we're actually not seeing the same rainbow. Um, what's happening is you're seeing um, certain microscopic droplets of water, and I'm seeing other microscopic droplets of water, because you have to be at exactly the right angle to get a color refracted through a microscopic droplet of water. There's so much water there, so many droplets of water, that even though I'm not seeing the same droplets as you are, I'm still seeing a rainbow. But we're seeing different droplets of water when we see the rainbow. Yeah? I was going to say that's also why you never see a rainbow like coming at you. You always right. see it like this. Exactly. Because you have to see it from a certain right. angle. Right. That's why it's like uh, whatever, there's gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. There is no end of the rainbow. <laughs> Okay, so do people know what a camera obscura is? Um, so a camera obscura, try this at home, is if you take a, um, an opaque surface, if you go into a dark room or just um, put something really dark, take an opaque surface and put a pinhole through it. What'll happen is, and people used to do this to do painting and drawing, is that if you have a scene out here, um, that scene will, you can project it through this tiny pinhole thing, sometimes called a pinhole camera, onto a surface back here. And do people know what will happen in that projection? It'll flip. Do you know why? Does anyone know why it flips? Yeah. Because uh, there's only one point that uh, each ray of light can go through. So if, if it's not like directly in line, then... Yes. Right. We'll do it as an emoticon, sort of. Okay. An emoticon on its side. So what happens is the only ray of light that goes through from that part of the emoticon will hit up here. The only ray of light that goes through, it's got to go through that hole and it'll hit down here. Okay. Does everyone see that? So as it goes through the pinhole, rays of light from the bottom head towards the pinhole through it, and the only angle they can take will bring them to the top. Rays of light from the top go towards the pinhole through it, and the only, the only way they can go is to hit towards the bottom. So you get an upside-down image. Pinhole cameras you can build and use film, and it's not a real problem because then you just flip it over for people. Um, but that's how pinhole cameras work. Lenses work the same way. What a lens does, what our eyes do, is they refract light so that it hits what's called a focal point um, and then flips onto our retina. So as you all know, the world hits our retina upside down. You all remember this? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Leonardo figured this out, and it freaked him out, and here's why. Oh, marvelous, oh, stupendous necessity, thou with supreme reason compellest all effects to be the direct result of their causes, and by supreme and irrevocable law, every natural action obeys thee by the shortest possible process. That's his way of saying a line is the shortest distance between two points, um, at least for our purposes. Who would believe that so small a space 
could contain the images of all the universe. He's actually doing a human anatomy when he writes this and looking at the lens of the eye. Oh, mighty process, what talent can avail to penetrate a nature such as these? It's all really amazing. And then, hear the forms, hear the colors, hear all the images of every part of the universe are contracted to a point. So here is something in the universe. Now let's say it's a mountain, and that mountain contracts to a point as it goes through the pinhole. Here they are contracted to a point. What point is so marvelous? Oh, wonderful. Um, these are miracles. Forms already lost because they are reduced to a point. Mingled together in so small a space, it can recreate and recompense by expansion. So what freaked him out, what he was amazed by, is that the entire world goes through a point where it flips upside down. The entire visual image is concentrated into that single point here. The entire visual image is in a point. The whole plane, the whole <coughs> hemisphere, is brought into a single point simultaneously. It then unpacks. But for him, that's the olive. It's a real world thing. <coughs> Whenever you see anything, Everything that you're seeing is being compressed into a single point and then decompressed in the other way. And what he's amazed by is that you lose no information. It never gets entangled with itself. It's squeezed into a point and unsqueezed upside down, and everything is as it was. Um, I think it is an amazing thing. I think it's worth knowing that. OK, I will send you um, on latte. There's more reading from early Greek philosophy, which we really will start more of um, a week from today. We don't have class Monday. Um, and I think I'm going to reverse the order of reading Bertrand Russell and reading Hilbert. So um, they'll both be on latte, but you should read the Russell, um, his introduction to mathematics first. OK, have a good weekend.